Well, we've almost made it. Ladies and gentlemen, this is December 23rd. We've almost made it. You're still standing. That's good. We've almost made it through that season in November and December when we give ourselves the worst kinds of permissions. Permissions to eat massive quantities of foods that are not good for us. Spend money we either don't have or could put to substantially better use. Overcommit ourselves to being places and pleasing people and generally volunteering for levels of stress we know aren't good for us. Merry Christmas. All in the name of rescuing the Romans from the evils of Saturnalia. Did you know this? That Christians uh, for three centuries didn't really celebrate Christmas too much, and that's because if you take the biblical evidence that would begin to set a date for the birth of Christ, it was probably at the end of March. And uh, since Easter is the high celebration of Christians, then you can't really celebrate, which also comes very near the end of March often. Uh, then you can't have that kind of conflict in place. And so early Christians for 300 years didn't really celebrate Christmas. It wasn't until shortly after Constantine in 312 A.D. the Roman emperor became a Christian himself that the thought of celebrating Christmas became popular. Uh, When Constantine became a Christian, he took it upon himself, likely at the constant urging of his mother, by the way, to rescue the Roman citizenry from paganism, and convert them to Christianity. One of his strategies for doing this was to kidnap the annual festival of Saturnalia by infusing it with Christ Mass, the saying of the Christ Mass, which we now know as Christmas. So far, so good? Okay. At the time, uh, uh, at the time of Constantine, uh, Saturnalia was a festival that was celebrated every December 17th through the 25th. And what it did was it celebrated the winter solstice when they began to realize that though the days were getting shorter and shorter and shorter, that even in those crude ways of measuring days, they saw that the days were getting longer and longer and longer and that the sun was going to come back. And so they worshipped the god Saturn, who was their agricultural god. And they called this Saturnalia. The practice of Saturnalia was characterized by excessive feasting, the display of many lights, because they were all about the lights coming back, Uh, gift-giving, and, of all things, going from house to house and singing. Hmm, Saturnalia. Uh, There were also some very decadent and even evil practices that were a part of Saturnalia that I will spare you the details because they really, really uh, don't even warrant mentioning among us here. They were that bad. So Constantine's thought was that since the scriptures were not clear on the, on the date of Christ's birth, why not celebrate it on December 25th, and in doing so, rescue as many Romans as possible from the dangers, uh, dangerous and pagan Saturnalian rituals. And so he did, and lo, these many centuries later, 1,700 years, we do the same. 1,700 years from conversion of Constantine. Say, way to buzz kill me, Tom, go ahead. The truth is, is that I love Christmas. I love everything about Christmas. I love the lights. I love the singing. I love the feasting. I love the music. I love what we sang this morning. I I love Christmas. The reason I love Christmas, I think, the most is because it was the one time of year that we got to talk about God in our home. It was the one time of year that I heard the name Jesus Christ in a very different tone than how I heard it every other day of the year. Seriously. Seriously. And so it was, became a very, very, very special time uh, to me. And uh, we're almost home here now with it, and I love everything about Christmas. Um, as uh, Another thing that we did in my home that was very unusual for us is that we went to church. 
We went to church at Christmas, usually on Christmas Eve, and we brought our canned goods, and we put them next to a plastic baby Jesus. And I didn't know why we were doing these things, but I understood as a seven-year-old that there was something very mysterious going on here. There was something bigger than us that was happening here. And it was very, very, very cool. So over the past few decades, I've found something of substantially greater worth than our vicarious ministry to the Saturnalians, and that is that I have found Jesus, the real person of Jesus, the real person of Jesus who wants to be experienced by every seeking heart at Christmas time. So I love Christmas. I am not distracted by these things. I enfold them as Constantine did into my pursuit of Jesus. So the experiential reality of being in the company of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit is very special for Karen and me at the Christmas time. So it's been my heart to take you on this journey every year, every year. And if, you've known, if you think about the years of Christmas that some of you have been here and with us, then you know that we've been on some form of this journey. And uh, I, I feel like I want to tell you that as the one who knows both the pitfalls of Saturnalia and the pleasures of knowing Jesus. And so uh, in some ways I feel like I'm an escaped prisoner from all that Christmas was told to me as a kid, which didn't have a whole lot to do with Jesus. I feel like I'm an escaped prisoner who knows the way out. And I want to tell you the way out. I want to tell you how to escape from Saturnalia. I I feel like I'm at that that place, you know, where I'm I'm kind of holding the razor wire open and going, come on, come on, you guys. And uh, not everyone I know will hear. Not everyone will be able to hear. I understand that now. Some will hear but won't listen. Some will listen but won't do. They won't do the things. But some will come to the hole and you'll escape. And you'll find Jesus. And you'll find the company of the one who says, I want to abide in you. The one who said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If any man abides in me, and he in him will bear much fruit. I in him will bear much fruit. So, uh, So far we've been lighting these candles as part of our escape from Saturnalia. And it all started with the concept that we have to believe. We have to have hope. We have to dial into the prophecy of the Old Testament and we have to release our faith into the truth that Jesus Christ was promised for 700 years and that at the time of the Father's choosing, Jesus Christ came. And as we release our faith, as we have faith, as we believe that this story is true and that God loves you and that He wants to have relationship with you, you set yourself up for the escape. You know you're a prisoner. You're still a prisoner. But you have to believe that someone's coming to rescue you when you're a prisoner, correct? That's how you stay alive while you're a prisoner. You just have to believe. You're not out yet, but you're believing that someone is coming. That's the gospel of Jesus. Next it was to prepare. You've got to get ready to escape. You've got to be ready when the time comes to make your escape. And in John the Baptist's words, that was repent. Repent. Turn from our sin. Turn away from our sin. Stop making our sin in the pursuit of our own selves, the central reality of our lives, and turn to God. Let's put our faces on Jesus. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. And that's how we we get ready for the deliverance. That's how we get ready to escape. Remember, I'm holding the thing open for you, right? And then last week, we saw that you have to receive. And as Mary received the plan of God for her life, Mary received the plan of God for her life in spite of how it interrupted her life and changed all of her plans and wasn't according to probably everything she'd ever thought about as a kid, she said, I'm the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And by receiving the Lord's unique plan for our lives as new creations in Christ, then we, we set ourselves up. 
We have to receive the plan of the rescuer. If you're over here in bondage, if you're here as a prisoner, and you're preparing yourself, then when the rescuer comes and says, here's the way out, you can't say, no, I want to go another way. He knows the way out. Jesus knows the way out. And so then coming out and knowing Jesus as Savior and Lord of our lives, we then... Uh, light quickly, please. Thank you. We, we then... Uh, we then rejoice. There's only one thing left to do in this process of getting out. That's to go through the hole and rejoice in what we know to be true. To rejoice. This is the whole idea of the Advent, is to move from hoping, from longing, to the place of experiencing the risen Christ, the, 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 the nativity Christ, the, the crucified Christ, and the risen Christ, and then to rejoice. And so that's what I'm calling you to do today. To reach down deeply into the depths of whoever you are and heartily rejoice in the things that you know to be true. This fourth step is nicely demonstrated in one of the Advent passages in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. It happens to be my favorite of all of the Advent passages because of the characters of the, the shepherds that are in. I so relate to these guys, these stinking shepherds. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. And there were disciples living out in their fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angels, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, here's the rejoicing, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Look at three things. Look. God came to them. Look at three things, please. God came to them. God is the initiator of our salvation. God comes to us. He is the God who comes to us. We are not wearing ourselves out trying to get God's attention. He is ever-present because he has come to us. Look back at verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in their fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. These guys were doing what they were born to do. They were at work. They were just at work. Wherever you work, just imagine yourself at work. And God coming to you. They weren't in church. They were in synagogue, if you will. They were at work. And God came to them. He's a pursuing God. At night, these shepherds would bring their, often bring their flocks together, as many of you know, and during the day, they would separate them out and go out and lead them to individual places of pasture. But they would bring them together for a couple of reasons. The first main reason was so that they could pool their protective, their security resources. So that, you know, if you're by yourself guarding your sheep at night, you have to stay up all night. But if you can come together with seven or eight other flocks and bring them all together, you can take turns watching and you can possibly get some sleep. The other reason they would do this was because they could socialize together, because nobody wanted to be with the shepherds. Shepherds was a low, low, low position in this culture, and nobody wanted to be. They only had each other for friends. They really only had each other. And so they'd come together, 
They would socialize. They would be together. They'd be brothers together. They'd eat some mutton stew. (laughs) And they would pass the flask, is what they would do out there in the countryside. And that was their social unit. That was their society as shepherds. And I think it's just fascinating that these guys were just out doing what they do. And God came to them. God came to them. God's coming to some of you, and you know it. He's knocking on the door, and you know it, because he's coming to you. So verse 9, the angel comes and lights up the place with his glory and scares the bejeebers out of these poor half-drunk shepherds here. And these guys just kind of minding their own business. And, you know, the fact that Jesus... The fact that these shepherds were chosen to bear the message of Jesus should be an indication to us of what kind of message it was going to be. Because when Jesus, or when, when, you know, when the Father sent these angels to, to uh, these shepherds to tell them about the coming Jesus, you might think, oh, he's starting on the bottom and he's going to move up. How nice is that of God? But in reality, if you look through the story of Jesus, that the shepherds were high, as high on the social ladder as the message ever really got. There were two people that were lower than shepherds in this society. They were fishermen and tanners. The fishermen were lower because they, were, they, they couldn't make the grade in terms of the rabbi's school. They were just fishermen, and plus they stunk too. Shepherds stunk and fishermen stunk. I don't know what you think about fishermen, but these guys are out there pulling in massive quantities of fish, gutting them all day long, and then up to their waists in them sometimes, rubbing salt on the inside and outside. Now, how many of you guys like me have been fishing a few times, and then later on in the day we went, oh, come on, talk to me, guys. Yeah, okay, right? All right. I don't mind saying that. It's, it's a stinky thing to fish. To live in fish is really, really, really stinky. Nobody wanted to be around the fishermen. There was one lower, and that was the tanner. That was the guys who would take the, the hide off of the animals and would scrape the remaining fat off it and do what they needed to do chemically with these things in order to make leather. And these guys stunk bad. Their whole houses stunk. So I find it fascinating that if you keep reading through the message of Jesus, he started with the shepherds, <laughs> and then who did he go? He went one notch down on the ladder, to the fishermen. His first four disciples were fishermen. And then, and then in Acts chapter 10, where do we find Peter staying? At the home of Simon the Tanner, right? I just think this is fascinating, that God comes to the low of the low of the low. There was one other group of people that fit into Jesus' school, and they were the tax collectors who were rejected by their own countrymen because they'd compromised and sold out to the Romans. So there's nothing that you have done that disqualifies you from the grace of God. There's nothing that you have done or are doing that is causing God to run away from you. He is still coming. He's still coming. Give up. Repent. Cooperate with his plan because he's the God who comes. Second, I want you to notice that he came in peace. In verse 10 here, the Lord shows up. And the first thing he says is, don't be afraid. I bring you good news, a great joy that will be for all the people. I suppose that anyone who has this kind of encounter is going to respond in some pretty extreme anxiety. I know the few times that Karen and I have had these kind of, well, nothing like this, of course, but even the encounters that we've had with God that have been so real and, 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 and experiential, you know, they do bring a sense of anxiety when they come. And uh, 
Uh, so we can understand this. But the first thing he says is, I've come in peace. You know, God is coming to you in peace. I think you need to get this. Some of you are just maybe still at arm's length with God. I don't know what he wants. I don't know what he wants. I told you last week he wants to kill you. That's true. He wants to kill you so you can live. He wants to take your life so that he can give you life. He's coming to give you life. And then third, notice that God came to be found. He came to be found. The angels told these shepherds exactly where in what small town the Christ child would be found and even what he'd be wearing. The angel told them to go to Bethlehem, a small town, and search the barns until you find a baby dressed in rags. That's pretty specific, don't you think? Maybe if they had Google Maps or GPS coordinates, it might have been easier. But the point is, is that God set this whole thing up to be found. There was no mistake concerning the intent of, intent of this company of angels. They were, they were to go and tell these guys exactly where to go so that God could be found. And then in verse 16, you'll notice they didn't wait at all. Verse 16 says, So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. I don't know what your concept of God is, but clearly he's wanting us to find him. He's wanting us to discover him. He's wanting us to encounter him. And he's setting everything up so that we can find him. It's true that we have to take a step to come and experience him but he's setting himself up to be found. The message to the shepherds was not only that God had come and come in peace, but exactly where he could be found. I think there's a funny line in the movie Forrest Gump when Forrest was sarcastically asked by Lieutenant Dan if he'd found Jesus yet. Remember that line? And Forrest says, I didn't know I was supposed to be looking for him, sir. And that's the sad commentary on the American church. I didn't know I was supposed to be looking for him. I thought I was just supposed to pray the prayer, read my Bible, and hang on. Mm. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life. Do you have life? Do you have life? See, that's when you have something to rejoice about. That's when the rejoicing begins is when you have life. When you understand that he's come. He's come because he loves you. He's come to be found, to be experienced. And your experience may be unique, but it's there. And it's waiting to happen and waiting to happen in increasing measure. And then there was only one thing left for these guys to do at verse 20. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things which they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. They rejoiced. They said, it's all true. I mean, they're out there minding their own business. Angel, angels, instructions, go. It's true. And they teach us a great lesson about true rejoicing, and that's this. You can only rejoice over what you know to be true. Listen, you can only rejoice over what you know to be true. If we try to rejoice over things that we don't know to be true, we risk becoming hypocritical, don't we? You know, if we try to enter into even worship and we're singing things that we don't get, that it's not happening, it's like we risk being hypocritical. But we need to rejoice in what we know to be true. I want you to think of yourself watching the last couple of minutes of a very close football game and your favorite team is playing. I won't fill in the blank. You fill in the blank. And they're playing. It's a very close football game. And it's one of those things, it's one of those things that, you know, whoever has the ball last looks like they're going to win, right? You've been on that edge, haven't you? Yeah. When do you start rejoicing? When it's done. When you know. You don't rejoice going, oh, boy, look at this. They're so close they might lose. 
You rejoice. It's all done. The last second is ticked, and your team has the higher number. That's when you rejoice. You rejoice over what you know to be true. And you know, I'm calling you to rejoice this morning, church. And not everybody can rejoice about everything because we're all at different places on our journey with God. But what do you know to be true? Rejoice about that. Okay? Take a breath. Now rejoice. Because you know that you have breath. You know that your lungs are working, right? You know the miraculous exchange is happening over your lungs. Rejoice. Rejoice. Now go to the next thing. I want you to go to the next thing. I want you, are you with somebody? Are they there? You know them to be true. There they are. And you're with a loved one? Rejoice! They're there. And this is how you begin rejoicing. You begin rejoicing over what you know to be true. What do you have to rejoice for this morning, church? What do you have to rejoice for? Think about what you know to be true, what is solid in your life. That's where rejoicing comes. You say, yeah, but all these other things are happening. Stop! Rejoice over what you know to be true. Rejoice over the ground that you have taken. Rejoice over what you have. If you, if you develop a life of consistent worship from where you are, what you will find is God it will be expanding your territory into new areas. And you'll have more and more and more to rejoice over. So what do you have to rejoice over this morning? I want you to rejoice. I want you to rejoice. I want you right now to focus in on what it is that you know to be true. I know, for example, that there's a God in heaven. I know that there's a heaven after this. I know there's a hell after this. And I know beyond any doubt that because of my personal relationship with God through his son Jesus Christ that I'm going to heaven after this. I know that. And so that's a lot to rejoice about, yeah? Do you know that? If you know that, then there's something to rejoice over. If you don't know that, then back up to what you do know. Back up to whatever part of that you do know and rejoice over that. And as you rejoice and as you release worship to God and rejoicing, you'll see that God will be expanding your territory. Want to rejoice. Want to rejoice. You got something to rejoice about? Raise your hand if you've got something to rejoice about this morning. Have you got it in your mind? Yes? Say yes or I'll begin all again. Okay? Okay, now it's going to be your turn. It's going to be your turn to rejoice. Let's stand together, church.